2: You like to go out tonight? Just play it cool, don't trip or fall, watch the step. Try to act natural, but don't forget to flex. This is why you hit the gym and did the extra reps. Keep your eyes off your phone, man, ignore the text. Keep yourself in check, but don't forget to pay the check. Don't talk about your ex, unless you want to train wreck. Show yourself respect, you deserve better, and it's time to invest. in yourself and your future. The change, face the pain, evolve into a better you, or go insane. No more pointing fingers, no more placing blames. There's more to like the hollow exchanges so of playing games. So if you like a do all you can, Yeah, it's actually a pretty easy plan show you're more than just a dude in a band I bet she never hello that,
0: listeners and welcome to ohio mysteries you're listening to a clip of go out tonight by theo perry in collaboration with Jay Lee v this talented columbus singer songwriter is our featured ohio musical artist tonight so hang out with us to the end of the podcast we'll tell you more about theo and let you listen to that entire song Now let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Acrobeacon Journal.
1: Hi, everybody. Steve, our listeners can't see us, but I can see you. This is the first time since the pandemic started a year and a half ago that we've recorded in person.
0: Yes, I'm excited. And I know we've had to sacrifice some banter as we gave up the armchair detective because it just got too difficult to arrange all of that during the pandemic, but it sure makes a difference to be back in the studio with you.
1: Me too. So Steve, how good were you at American history?
0: Very good with American history. I, I love history. I love everything about history. Uh, I, I will be honest with you, I know more about British history than American history. Oh, I know
1: you are fascinated <laughs> with British history. Do you remember enough of your American history to remember hearing about the USS Maine? Uh,
0: to be honest with you, I, I remember it was a ship that was sunk, but for the life of me, I can't remember
1: how or why.
0: Is this one of those? Are you smarter than a fifth grader questions?
1: Yeah, exactly. Because you're not going to get out of school without hearing about the Maine, But, you know, as you get older, you probably forget all the details.
0: (laughs) Well, class is in session. Let's hear it again.
1: Okay. So, the USS Maine is important for many reasons, not the least of which is it ignited a war. The ship sunk after an explosion in 1898 and took the lives of 266 American sailors and Marines. Nearly 125 years later, the cause of the blast is still a mystery. Was it a mine? A torpedo? Was it an accident on board the ship? They didn't know then, they don't know now. Either way, the Maine's loud and bloody demise gave the United States an excuse to declare war on Spain. And, in the short conflict that followed, kicked the Spaniards out of the Caribbean, ending the last colonial European power in the Americas. While this historic event happened in the harbor of Havana, Cuba, 1,200 miles from the Buckeye State, incidents far from our borders often have significant ties here. I used to have a newspaper editor who told me, everything happening in the world has a connection to Ohio. Just go and find it. She was right. And for this story, it certainly wasn't hard. For starters, The men who sent the battleship to Cuba and presided over the Spanish-American War that followed were both Ohioans, President William McKinley, an attorney from Canton who was born in Niles, and his Secretary of War, Russell Alger, who was born in Medina County's Lafayette Township, then became a Cleveland attorney after studying law in Akron. Our second connection to the sinking of the Maine was, of course, the families here who lost a loved one. We'll tell you about some of them. The third tie was the technology that made the Spanish-American War unique. It was the first conflict in the world recorded in moving pictures. Oh, yeah. Steve, you know where we're going with this one? Thomas Edison? Uh, Yeah. The folks who filmed the Maine's wreckage, the mass burial, and the preparations for war were from a company founded by Ohio's own Thomas Edison. And finally... When the ship was raised more than a decade after its sinking, towns throughout America clamored for a piece of the ship to memorialize. At the end of our episode, we'll tell you where you can go in Ohio to see some of those pieces, including a very entertaining saga on the fate of the captain's bathtub. But first things first, let's start our tale on that fateful day, February the 15th, 1898. If you don't know this, Cuba is just 103 miles from Florida. That's closer than Columbus to Cincinnati or Columbus to Akron. So the United States has always had a vested interest in what's happening on that tiny island so close to our shores. And back in 1898, Cuba and Puerto Rico were still Spanish colonies and the Cubans were fighting for their independence. This caused a lot of tension. Americans were worried about their extensive investments on the island. They were worried about the rough treatment of Cubans by their Spanish rulers. And there was an overall sentiment that it was time to free the last of the European colonies in the Americas. In January of 1898, As the revolution on the island intensified, President McKinley ordered the Maine to go to Cuba, basically to be a presence there for the safety of Americans and American interests on that island. The ship canceled all furloughs and all discharges and sailed from Key West to Havana with Captain Dwight Sigsby at the helm. Three weeks after its arrival, on the night of February the 15th, The ship was having a peaceful evening in Havana Harbor. It was after 10 p.m. on a Tuesday night, and most of the enlisted men had retired to their quarters in the forward part of the ship. Then, suddenly, out of the blue, an enormous explosion tore through the ship's hull, right beneath the sleeping men. A third of the ship was obliterated. The rest rapidly settled to the bottom of the harbor. Of more than 370 on board, 266 were blown apart, drowned, or died of their injuries. Only 102 of the crew survived. As word of the explosion swept over the country like a wave, families who knew their loved one was on that ship gathered to wait for news. In Cincinnati, at 420 Milton Street, City police officer John Hennekes and his wife Rose were told their son, Bernard, a gunner's mate, was missing and likely dead. Family and friends gathered at the house and stayed into the night, praying a mistake had been made. Bernard's little sisters glanced often at the photo of him resting on the piano, the big brother in his sailor's uniform, who had promised to bring them wonderful things from his trip at sea. Deepening their pain, the morning of the explosion, the family had received a letter from Bernard. Now a mother reread the last words of a son who she feared was at the bottom of the ocean. On Friday, Bernard's fate was confirmed. His body was found floating alongside the sunken vessel and positively identified by the ship's chaplain, John Chidwick. When Bernard's parents learned that those killed in the blast were being buried in Cuba, they flinched at the thought of his final resting place being on ground over which a Spanish flag flew, especially when early reports suggested a Spanish torpedo or mine was to blame. John Hennicus told the Cincinnati Inquirer, I would spend every cent I have if I could get my son's body and bring it home, but I am afraid that it will never be recovered. He tried anyway. He telegraphed the State Department asking that the body be sent home for burial and that he would leave for Havana immediately to make arrangements. But that afternoon, he received an answer, a telegram from Secretary of the Navy John Long, telling him that just wasn't possible. In Hoboken, New Jersey, yet another family was grieving Bernard's death, his sweetheart. Bernard was supposed to have been released from service on February the 10th, just five days before the explosion. He had plans to marry Amelia Trueb. The Jersey girl traveled to Cincinnati to meet his family that fall and Bernard's sister returned with her to Hoboken to help plan the wedding. But tensions with Spain and the possibility of conflict had suspended all discharge orders, and so Bernard was stuck in Cuba. After receiving word of the disaster, Amelia went to the Brooklyn Navy Yard, carrying the last letter she had received from Bernard to prove her ties to him. It was a letter dated February 3rd, explaining to her how he would have to remain with the ship until it returned north. It was the staff of the Navy Yard that gave her the bad news. There was no single database I could find with definitive hometown connections for the victims of the Maine, but let me share with you other Ohioans mentioned in various newspaper clippings, though this list may not be all-inclusive. Another Cincinnati native who died was Gustav Ording, carpenter's mate, third class, the only son of Elizabeth and Henry Ording. After his father died, his mother remarried, and she, Gustav, and his sisters were raised in Newport, Kentucky. It was there that Elizabeth and the girls received the dreaded news. Gustav was 28 years old and had spent the previous 18 months on the ship. Just as with the Hennekes family, Gustav's sisters received a letter from their brother on the day he died. It had been mailed three days earlier, dated February the 12th. In that letter, he recounted the sad loss of a young officer who had been washed overboard from a torpedo boat. Then he talked about how he expected the ship to leave soon for New Orleans, probably spend a week there, then head for New York. He wrote, I would have been home long ago if not for the trouble down here in Havana, but I think we'll see that settled soon. In Marion, Ohio, the Reverend A. Ironman, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Church, telegraphed Secretary Long to ask after his brother, Charles. The two brothers had immigrated to the U.S. together from Germany, and while the older brother settled in Ohio, 25-year-old Charles joined the Navy as a teenager. He was a gunner's mate, first class, and had a sweetheart in Michigan making plans for their wedding. Charles Ironman was also the manager of the ship's baseball team. Just two months earlier, his team became the Navy's baseball champions by beating a team from the cruiser, the U.S. Marblehead. They planned to have an all-star match in Havana, but Charles and all but one member of his baseball team were killed. The names of the dead included Henry Sebastian Baum and John E. Marshall, two men whose occupations were listed as landsmen and both listing addresses in Cincinnati, though the Inquirer told readers it couldn't find local family for either man. Likewise, in Cleveland, the media couldn't find local family of two men with ties there. Thomas Clark, a coal passer, listed an address in Cleveland, but named his next of kin as his father, Michael Clark, in Newark, New Jersey. Another sailor, James Furlong, was from Logansport, Indiana, and listed his next of kin as Lizzie Furlong of Cleveland. Another victim, Walter Sellers, worked in the ship's apothecary. His hometown wasn't identified, but he listed his next of kin as John Sellers of Shelby, Ohio. At first, all of the dead were buried in a cemetery in Havana. But a month later, Congress approved a bill authorizing for their remains to be transferred to Arlington National Cemetery. It took a while, but on December 28, 1899, 165 remains were brought back home and reinterred with full military honors. 63 of them were known. The rest were never identified.
2: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch.
0: Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate
1: Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I briefly mentioned earlier about the Spanish-American war being filmed. Here's more about that. The Edison Manufacturing Company, founded by Milan, Ohio's native son, Thomas Edison, hired cameraman William Paley to film the burial of the main victims in Havana, the wreckage of the ship in Havana Harbor, and then of military troops in Florida as they trained for war. The films he shot were released on May the 20th, 1898, in a special supplement to the Edison Manufacturing Company's catalog with a description of the film that said, and I quote, sure to satisfy the craving of the general public for absolutely true and accurate details regarding the movements of the United States Army getting ready for the invasion of Cuba. This made it the first time a military conflict in human history had ever been filmed. Meanwhile, Investigators had been trying to figure out what caused the explosion. When Commander Francis Dickens woke President McKinley up that Tuesday night to tell him the news, he referred to it as an accident. When Navy Captain Philip Alger, an expert on ordnance and explosives, reported on the incident to his department the next day, he described it as having been caused by a spontaneous fire in the coal bunkers, that had set off the ship's magazines. Assistant Navy Secretary Teddy Roosevelt pushed back, saying people were jumping to conclusions and that he thought it entirely possible it was a submerged mine. And newspapers, particularly those owned by William Hurst and Joseph Pulitzer, embarked on a rather famous era known as yellow journalism, sensationalizing inaccurate stories blaming Spain and pushing the idea of the culprit being a torpedo. The Navy insisted it was not a torpedo. But a month after the incident, a U.S. naval court of inquiry settled on the theory of the submerged mine, though frankly it had no evidence and therefore wouldn't formally name Spain as the antagonist. Modern-day naval researchers, by the way, side with those earlier reports that the accident happened aboard the ship. But whether the accusations were true or not, the harm was done. Under the rallying cry, Remember the Maine! To hell was Spain! The United States marched into war that April the 25th. The Spanish-American War was brief, less than four months The fighting was done by August the 13th. Secretary of State John Hay famously described it as a splendid little war, because it had huge historical consequences. Spain gave the U.S., Guam, and the Philippines in the Pacific, and the Caribbean island of Puerto Rico. Cuba won its independence. Guam and Puerto Rico, of course, are still U.S. territories, The Philippines were given their independence years later. And just as importantly, those four months had changed America. The United States, only a generation removed from the Civil War, was still a fractured land. The fight against Spain united the country under a shared sense of nationalism. And the United States took its place as a global power. Now, about those artifacts I mentioned earlier. You may recall after the terrorist attacks on 9-11, many cities across America asked for and received a piece from the fallen Twin Towers so they could include it in a permanent community memorial. The same thing happened with the U.S. Maine. At first, the ship stayed right where it sank, partially sticking out of the water. The U.S. argued that if the ship had hit a mine they weren't going to risk another detonation. And so it laid there beneath the waves for more than a decade. But Cuba complained that the ship was taking up valuable space in their harbor. So in 1910, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers began a two-year effort to lift it from its watery grave, collect remains from 66 more sailors that had been entombed there, then moved the main four miles out to sea. There in 1912, before a 100,000 people lining the shoreline and amidst a grand military ceremony, the ship was scuttled in deeper water. But not before pieces of the ship were pulled for dissemination among patriotic groups who wanted to create memorials. The big mast was erected at Arlington National Cemetery in Arlington, Virginia, The USS Maine Memorial there overlooks the remains that were moved from the Havana Cemetery and reinterred. Metal, salvaged from the ship, was used to create memorial plaques. I found mentions of Berea and Illyria receiving them, though I don't know if they still have or display them. Wikipedia said a plaque was also given to Steubenville and that the city displays it at the south door of the Jefferson County Courthouse. A more significant piece is in Canton, which has a Veterans Memorial Park right off I-77 at the corner of 13th Street Northwest and Harrison Avenue. There, they have the base of the USS Maine's Conning Tower, a huge circular piece weighing 50,000 pounds. The Conning Tower was a heavily armored cylinder with tiny windows from which a commander could issue orders during battle. A portal cover and a section of the base mast was given to the city of Newburgh Heights, and it's currently on display in the Cleveland Metro Parks, Washington Park. One final piece I want to tell you about has a rather colorful history. Here's the story I found on roadsideamerica.com. Congressman Frank Willis from Urbana, Ohio, snagged an unusual prize when they were passing out pieces of the ship. Captain Sigsby's enameled steel bathtub. He offered it to Urbana's Women's Club, but they said no thanks. They would use it as a horse trough before they'd put it on display. They told Willis, go back get a respectable piece, like a 10-inch artillery shell. When the city of Findlay, Ohio, heard about this, they said, hold up, we'll take the tub. And they actually had to fight off Boston because that Massachusetts city was the hometown of the Mainstead captain, and they wanted it. Some folks were making fun of this fight, laughing at the idea that anyone wanted the thing to begin with. The Cincinnati Enquirer even made a suggestion of questionable taste that the bathtub be sunk in the Ohio River. Anyway, in Urbana, Congressman Willis wasn't going to give up his bathtub till he got his artillery shell. It took a while, but when it arrived, he shipped the tub off. On March the 3rd, 1913, the bathtub made its triumphant arrival in Findlay, but those who received it were immediately put off. Their prize was rusted and ugly from its 14 years at the bottom of the harbor. So the city of Findlay stiffed the city of Urbana for the freight charge and tucked the artifact into storage. A year later, They were using it at City Hall for a coal bin. Then some good folks in Lima, Ohio, found out and raised a fuss and asked to have the tub so it could be properly memorialized. That's when Finley's Spanish War veterans woke up and fought back, promising to get the bathtub, bronze it, and display it in a park. So Lima backed off, but the vets never followed through. Instead, they stuck the tub into a display case in a small, unused hall at the Findlay Courthouse. And that's where it sat for 15 years. A janitor who was weary of trying to explain what the thing was to visitors finally taped a homemade sign on it that said, USS Maine Bathtub. In 1960, when that courthouse was renovated, the city gave the tub to the Findlay College Museum, which was frankly, more interested in the display case. They repurposed the case for something else and stuck the tub in storage. In 1974, the tub finally found its way to the Hancock Historical Museum, where it again was promptly stuck in the basement. But eventually, someone realized what a gem they had. The Maine only had one captain, and he only had one bathtub. And if you want to see it, you can swing by the Hancock Historical Museum at 422 West Sandusky Street in Findlay. That's where it is still proudly on display. There are probably many, many more pieces of the main somewhere in Ohio, but there's no all-inclusive database keeping track of them. But there you have some options if you're looking for a day trip. The story
0: on that bathtub is hilarious. The artifact had such colorful history. Something about us Ohioans and winning pieces of wrecked ship that have connections with us, right? We, we uh, you, just did one on the USS yeah, Sh- Shenandoah. Yeah, you're
1: thinking of the <laughs> Shenandoah. Yeah, we, we love our, our tragic uh, crashes here.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com.
1: Now for more on our featured musical artist tonight. Theo Perry is an eclectic and soulful singer-songwriter out of Columbus. He often plays with a band called Theo's Loose Hinges, which has been playing together for more than a dozen years. But the song we're featuring tonight, he did under his own name in collaboration with J. Lee v. Now, the song Go Out Tonight was inspired by the idea of love at first sight. The lyrics paint a picture of that moment when you meet someone new and are asking them out for the first time, and the nerves and the advice from friends that go into that matter. You can go see Theo in person. He'll be performing at the restaurant in the Renaissance Hotel in Westerville on September the 24th, at Local Roots in Powell, Ohio on September the 26th, and at the Goat Hilliard in Hilliard on October the 7th. And you can see all of the loose hinges on October the 16th at local roots. Again, that one's in Powell. For times and addresses on those performances and more, go to Theosloosehinges.com.
0: Well, let's have another listen to Go Out Tonight by Theo Perry. And we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
3: <laughs> It just be the perfect start of our The story, you and me, A to Z, would you like to go out tonight? Hey, how you doing? Can I trouble you for just a little bit of your time? I won't keep you, but I saw you looking beautiful, and girl, you blew my mind. How's your parents? I can see it in your eyes that they raised their daughter right. 'Cause you're not looking flashy, your conversation is classic. Do you think that we can go out tonight? Hey, can we go out
2: tonight? I'ma lay it out. Hey, hey.
3: I'ma lay it out
2: for you with a little advice, but first worst scenario she says no, you know you tried. Best scenario she marries you becomes your wife, but hold up, slow up, first you gotta go ask out. Will she even show I up? I do this all the time, and girl
3: that's not a line but something that's on my mind said, "Prince, I was never stupid, begin with a decent. what I did, is so a and have some time to get dressed. Yeah, and girl I'm gonna try to impress. Hey, hey, what you like? Take a ride right side by side It feels like it Could just be the perfect start Of our love story You and me, A and
2: Would you like to go Play it cool, don't trip or fall, watch the step. Try to act natural, but don't forget to flex. This is why you hit the gym and did the extra reps. Keep your eyes off your phone, man, ignore the text. Keep yourself in check, but don't forget to pay the check. Don't talk about your ex unless you want to train wreck. Show yourself respect, you deserve better, and it's time to invest in yourself and your future. Either change, face the pain, evolve into a better you, or go insane. No more pointing fingers, no more placing blames. There's more than like the hollow exchanges so or playing games. So if you like a do, all you can, it's actually a Pretty easy plan Show you more than just a dude in a band Cause I bet she never knew a bad boy would be a good man they got
3: tables set for two but tonight